Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. Um, now, uh, I just might highlight something. If, you could, if you've got the outline, you can see there, uh, it's got these three sections to it. Now, um, by the time I got to, well, let's be honest, yesterday, I thought, yeah, nah, I'm not going to do all that. So, so um, uh, I'm actually not going to do the whole chapter and a half. Once you really dig into John, you work out that's a pretty um, hard task. We're going to focus on the first two points. So, if you, um, if you don't like to take notes, you can draw a line through that and use all of that space um, as well. Just thought I'd keep it real. Actually, that's a nice segue to my introduction, keeping it real. It, keep it real is actually uh, an expression that people use these days if they want to um, let everyone know that the hard in-your-face thing that they've just said is just being honest, right? It's just telling the plain truth. I'm just, I'm just keeping it real, right? I'm, I'm just I'm not, not going on with all the fluff. I'm keeping it real. Now, sometimes, of course, that's just an excuse to be blunt, but sometimes it's actually really refreshing when people keep it real, especially at those times when you're preparing for something really important, preparing for marriage. You want people to keep it real. Preparing to emigrate to a new country, you want to know the truth, right? Starting a new job. When you get your results back from the doctor, you want people to keep it real. See, that's when we're not after persuasive messaging or salesmanship, but truth and a solid grounding that will make us ready for the realities that are going to follow and whether they're good or bad, pleasant or unpleasant. Just think about, when would you prefer someone to just keep it real? Do you know, it's no small thing to be a Christian in this world. I think we kind of seen that already this morning in the videos that we've seen. Being a Christian, it's, it's, not a, it's not just a religious hobby. Christians are not Jesus fans like someone who's a devotee of stranger things or craft beer. If you're a Christian, this is what you've done, right? You have handed the keys of your life over to Jesus. You have said to him, I believe that you're the risen King of Kings, who's got the right to rule my life. I renounce my old way of living my life without you at the centre of it, and I'm going to willingly and joyfully submit my life to you. So here I am. Who do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? That is the Christian today, the Christian tomorrow, the Christian next year. But the thing is, what will those today's, tomorrow's and next year's actually contain for us? What should we be preparing to encounter as we hand our life over to Jesus? See, as Christians, we want more than just the motivational billboard slogan. We need to understand the truth and the whole truth. Well, thankfully, that's what the Bible gives us. The Bible does not sugarcoat the Christian life. It keeps it real with all of the challenges that come with it as well as all of the wonderful joys. Now, um, we're up to, as you noticed in the reading, we're up to the second half of John chapter 15. And we're going to go into halfway into John chapter 16. And Jesus is, is merely hours from being arrested, beaten and crucified. And as he shares this last meal with his disciples, he's, he's preparing them 
for when he's not going to be there anymore. He's preparing them for his absence. And his final words to them that night are to prepare them for their mission into the world now when, when he is gone. See, what he's doing here is he's preparing them for a critical shift from being his disciples, that is students, sitting under his teaching, to being his apostles, that is those that he is sending out into the world as ambassadors for the King of Kings. That is a big change in role. And as the conversation shifts in this direction, he's preparing them, Jesus, well, he certainly keeps it real for them. He lays out for them the truth of what lies ahead in all of its hardship and in all of its glory. And he begins by telling them the truth about the relationship that Christians have with the world around them. And again, he does not sugarcoat it. Look at verse 18 there. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. It's pretty stark, isn't it? The world hates you. And there's no, you know, subtle sense to this word hate and has it been... No, it means what it says, hate. To detest, to have intense dislike. The world hates you. Keep in mind, did it? Hates me first. Um, do you ever get the impression that the world is not that fond of Christians? It's pretty hard not to, actually, isn't it? Have you ever been on the receiving end yourself in your day-to-day -day life, in your relationships, of the hatred of the world against Christianity? Well, Jesus says, don't, as Aaron said in that video, don't, don't be shocked by it. Keep in mind that the world hated Jesus first. It's the world that in a few hours after Jesus gives these very words are going to torture him to death on the cross. And why did they do that? Is it because he was a horrible person? Is it because he's a criminal? No, nothing of the sort. It's because of what he said. It's because of what he taught. It's because he claimed to be the light of the world, the bread of life, the good shepherd, one who existed before Abraham was born, the great I am, the resurrection and the life, the Son of God, the Messiah that the whole world should put their trust in if they want to live. It's because he told people what true righteousness really was and that they didn't possess it. It's because he challenged people that they had been corrupted and followed the lies, in fact, of Satan, not the laws of Moses. It's because he called self-righteous people to repentance and warned of God's judgment if they failed to do that. That's why they killed him. It's not because he was nice to poor people. But the world stubbornly refused to listen to that message. And even though Jesus demonstrated time and time again in front of their very eyes a power, an authority that clearly came from God and could only come from God, they refused to respond. They blocked their ears, they shut their eyes and go, yeah, 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 don't want to know. And as Jesus has said many times throughout John's Gospel, he said, but you know, when I'm doing that, I am just doing my Father's work. I am proclaiming the Father's message and passing on to you. I'm not doing this on my own. So in effect and in truth, their hatred of the Son 
is actually a demonstration of their hatred of God the Father. Look at verses 22 to 25, because that's the point he makes. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. But as it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Now I need to clarify something there. When, when he says, if I had not come, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. He's not saying that they're wonderful, good people. Jesus turns up and suddenly they're transporting to translate into sinners. What he means is that they wouldn't be guilty of hating the father by rejecting his son unless they had rejected the Messiah when he came to him. Now that he has come, now that he's preached, now that he's worked in their midst, their true nature, the true nature of their hearts has been exposed. They've got no excuse now. They can't claim ignorance. They're guilty. And when he says, um, they hated me without reason, he's quoting the psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 69. It's a psalm of David and and you could, um, no doubt you heard it when it was being read. He's lamenting this perverse and unjustified hatred towards him as the Lord's anointed king. They hated me without reason. Well, Jesus is saying, that's what's happening to me. It's perverse. It's unreasonable. See, at the heart of their opposition to Jesus was simple, old-fashioned, human rebellion against the authority of God. That's what it all boiled down to. When Jesus came into the world, Jesus didn't come into friendly territory or even neutral territory. He came to the world that was his own, but it loved the darkness instead of light. So go back to verse 18 again and Jesus' message to his followers, to us, right? If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And so what he's saying is that if you love Jesus and if you live your life for him, then you've got to be realistic about how you expect the world to respond to you given the way it responded to Jesus. Now, is that if, in verse 18 there, is that a possibility or is it a, a certainty? Is it a, listen, if sometime down the track you find the world hating you, or is it a, well, when you find the world hating you, it's the latter. But it's the latter for a really beautiful reason. It's because we belong to Jesus. We're actually his. But that wonderful truth, the fact that we belong to Jesus, also means that we don't belong to the world. Verse 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. People love those that are the same as them. Okay? So you see a little bit of a picture of this on State of Origin night, don't you? You know, um, men and women that have got absolutely nothing in common, may have never met before, but they're sitting in a stadium next to each other wearing the same coloured jersey. And so they're cheering together and they're slapping each other on the back like they're just age-old buddies. You know, 
national pride comes from the same thing, right? A shared identity as Australians. I am, you are, we're all Australians, right? If you're one of us, we will look after you. That kind of thing. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is that there is often a fear or a hatred towards those that are different to us and that don't do what we do. Those who are not one of us. And we see that at the heart of racism, class conflicts, political rivalries, many other things. But what Jesus is saying here is that Christians are actually worse. We're worse in the world's eyes than just being different. It's not that, look, we're different, we've always been different. It's that we used to be one of them. And now we're not. You do not belong to the world, Jesus says, but I have chosen you out of the world. We don't belong, but we used to. In other words, we're the worst because we changed teams. We're now batting for the enemy. The world is in active rebellion against God and we used to be part of that rebellion. But now we've turned back and stand for God in the middle of the rebellion. And that is why the world hates us. It's because we don't look to the world for guidance anymore. We don't follow the world's lead. And we call it out for being wrong about God. Now, of course, it's not as if the whole non-Christian world walks around dreaming up ways of, of giving Christians a hard time. They've got other things on their mind. They have their lives to live and better things to do than just pick on Christians all the time. We're not going to face opposition every waking moment. But when our allegiance to Jesus comes to the fore and it clashes with that of the world around us, that's when we'll feel the heat. It's when we say things like that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him because that's what Jesus said about himself you know that's when we're going to feel it it's when we challenge what the world says is good because we go well God says it isn't and I'm with God it's when we say that yes there is a God and yes he will actually hold people to account for not worshipping him he is going to judge and he's going to punish it's when we say no when our friends or our, our school or our workplace tells us to do something that might be illegal or unethical or contrary to Christian conscience. It's when we say maybe no to our family who are continually trying to, to draw us away from church. See, whenever the Lordship of Jesus comes before our cooperation with the world, whenever the Word of God goes against the Word of the world and we go with God, what God has to say, that's when the ridicule is going to come. That's when the ostracism, the emotional blackmail, the abuse, and for some, actually sadly, for many around the world, the violence. Christians are the most persecuted people group in the world by a country mile. Well, if the world hates you, when it hates you, keep in mind that it hated Jesus first. 
And it's for a good reason, because you belong to him now. And you don't belong with the world. And the world is starting to notice. Look at verse 20. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. When did he say that? When he was washing their feet. Showing his love for them. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Remember, Jesus wasn't crucified because he was nice to people. It's because of what he preached. It, it was his message about himself and the world. And that is where we too should expect persecution. The world's more than happy for us to feed the poor. The, more, the world's more than happy for us to go off and do aged care. In fact, if we're not doing it, they go, oh, you're meant to be Christians, why aren't you doing that? No, when the world gets ticked off is when we open our mouths. If we actually preach and teach what Jesus preached and taught. Do you know, in Luke um, chapter 6, Jesus gives this warning. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Those same false prophets that preached peace and safety when there wasn't any. Now, it's foolishness to see rejection as being the acid test of orthodoxy, right? Um, everyone hates my guts, I must be really, really good, right? If you offend people, you've got to be doing something right. No, it could be because you're offensive. Um, but, but the desire to be the nice and reasonable evangelicals, the ones that people go, well, we don't mind you. These are the ones that we don't like. The, the thing, oh, I want to be that one. The ones that the world is okay with. It's, that's when it can lead to equivocation and the dulling of the offence of the gospel, the muting of Christ's call to repentance, the silencing of his warning of coming judgment. And all that is done in order to gain a hearing from a world that hates all of that message. What, let's say we got the hearing. What are we going to tell them? Because that's the stuff that's offensive and that's the stuff we've muted. What message do we have? Or we're, we're afraid of, of losing a hearing from people that hate, the, hate God from a world that our Lord has told us hates him just as it hated his father and is going to hate us. You know, Jesus didn't hide the truth so that he could win a hearing. And neither should we. We need to be gracious. We need to be wise. We need to be humble. But we need to keep it real. So then, how should we respond to the world hating us. Well, here's one alternative. Now, I'll have to make a confession. I go for manly, okay? Now, one thing about being a manly supporter is that you're used to being hated. It's, it's easy to just don't hate manly in a Google search and boom, all this stuff comes up. There's no shortage of material, right? People tend not to be neutral towards manly. They either support manly or they hate them. And to be honest, manly fans Love it. Now, that tends to be friendly banter. 
But in the real world, when people are hated, you know what we often do? Hate people back. And for real. Is that the way it should be for Christians and the world? Should we go, "Mm, they hate us? Should we see the non-Christian world as our enemies? What about this as an alternative? Silence. That's what some Christians have chosen to do. Withdraw from the world. Just stick to ourselves, keep our heads down and just, just be different. And maybe, maybe some might notice and actually go, you got a weird, what is it? Why do you do all of that? And maybe they might want to ask us what we believe. But really the goal is to minimise contact with the world just in case on one hand we inflame their opposition or worse still, catch its evil ways. And actually the irony of this is that it's precisely what many in the world actually think we should do. We should be like this. It's the secularist mindset. Sure, be a Christian if you must. That's your freedom. I believe in freedom of religion. But stay out of the public sphere. Keep your mouth shut about your beliefs on things and your opinions and what you think your God says. And whatever you do, don't try to persuade anybody else to follow Jesus. That's the biggest crime of all. Well, you know what? Neither response matches with what God wants from us. Now, there is one respect that we are to hate the world. We're to hate whatever is evil and cling to what is good. And and, and that means we really feel it. We've really got to go, if something is evil and wicked, we go, I hate that. And if something is good, we go, that is precious. And I'm not going to have it spoken of as being bad. Um, We should care enough so that we don't just shrug our shoulders when the world does what is wicked towards God or other people. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And that means when he's rejected and blasphemed, that's got to bother us, right? But we don't respond by acting hatefully towards those who belong to the world. And nor do we respond by staying silent and isolated. Because this is what Jesus said in Luke 6, 27. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. See, we also love the Father who John himself remind us it was the Father who so loved the world, the world, that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus tells us here that he's, we're going to have the Holy Spirit who the Father and the Son have sent in order to testify to the world about the truth of Jesus that the world might respond. Verse 26, when the Advocate comes... Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify because you have been with me from the beginning. I mean, that's, isn't that the amazing thing about God? That he steps into a world that hates him so that he might save people who are a part of that world and die for them. I mean, his is a mission into enemy territory where he wants to redeem them, to reconcile the relationship, to give those same people new life in Christ. See, the gospel is a message of gracious and compassionate and forgiving God. That's what you responded to when you became a Christian. And that is the message that he wants all the world to hear. 
And because that is what the Spirit will come to do, well, that's what those who are witnesses to, to Jesus and indwelt by that same Spirit must also testify to. Now, verse 27 is, is clearly a specific word for his disciples because they actually were eyewitnesses of the physical Jesus. But, but their testimony has now been passed on to us, to all who've responded to that gospel. And this very same Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about there is the same Holy Spirit that if you're a believer dwells in you. The Spirit that was sent into the world to testify about Jesus. In other words, our mission is the same as theirs. Now, you know there's a, an expression, uh, forewarned is forearmed. In other words, if you know something is coming, then, then you're prepared, right? It doesn't catch you off guard. You can prepare yourself to respond rightly to it. Well, Jesus warns his disciples and he warns us. Chapter 16, verse 1 to 4. All this I've told you so that you will not fall away. They'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. And they will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. So as we carry the good news of Jesus to the world that needs him, we need to face up to the reality that persecution is inevitably going to come with that. And being prepared for that reality, we need to stand firm as representatives of our King. Now, so far, so bleak, right? Keeping it real can often have that effect, can't we? Right? Ever had the doctor say to you, this is going to hurt a little? You're kind of going, thanks. But the rest of this passage is also keeping it real. And the rest of it is the reality that should actually encourage you and strengthen every Christian heart. Because you see, the world might hate us, but God loves us. And he is sending his messengers out into the world and he is going to be personally with every single one of them. Look there in verse 4, the second half of verse 4 of chapter 16. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask where you're going. Rather you're filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Now I want you to put yourself in that room. I want you to imagine what the disciples had seen over the life of his ministry. If you're in that room that night, and you're sitting in front of the one who you saw calm storms and feed 5,000 people with just a handful of loaves and fish, and if you were time and again, week after week, saw him outwitting and out-teaching his enemies, would you believe what Jesus is saying right now? Oh, it's better that I go. How is it going to be better that you go? They're filled with grief that he's going they're, they're lost. They're going, you're the Messiah. We've, we've now come to that understanding and you're going? How can this be better? Well, what does the passage tell us? Look there again. It says, verse 7, I think it is, um, unless I go away, 
the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So, so with the departure of Jesus comes the arrival of the advocate. Now, you've got to be going at this point in time, if you didn't know who the advocate was, the Messiah goes and this advocate's going to be better. Who is this advocate, right? It's the Holy Spirit. But why is it better, even necessary for Jesus to go and the Spirit to come? Well, I'm going to ask you a question. This is one of those questions that's not rhetorical. You, you call out, I want you to hear your answer from the, the floor here. All right. It's actually pretty simple. Where am I? In, in church at Gladesville. Okay? That wasn't hard, was it? Okay. Um, where am I not? Give me a name. What? Outside. I'm not outside. I'm not in Brisbane, for instance. Okay. Um, now, <laughs> now, why am I not outside or in Brisbane right now? Because I'm here. Okay, this is rocket science. Um, yeah, that's right. I'm here because I, so therefore I can't be there. I'm a human being. This is where I am. And I cannot be anywhere else at the same time as being here. Do you now realise what a profound thing it is to say that God became man? As John 1 reminds us, the word that is the eternal son who's been at the father's side from before the creation of the universe became flesh and dwelt among us. And it is not some temporary inhabitation. The body that is Jesus of Nazareth was not possessed by God for a period of time. God the Son became as one of us permanently. And that is why he can truly die for us. He's not a pretend one of us. He's really one of us. That's how he can die for our sins. That's how he can live for us. That's how he can sympathize with us. That's how he can understand what you're going through. Because he truly became like one of us. In other words, the incarnation is genuine and permanent, not pretend. And that also means that when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples saying these words, he is not out on the streets of Jerusalem at the same time. And when he's teaching in Jerusalem, he's not teaching in Uruguay. When Jesus goes to the Father after his atoning death and resurrection, Jesus went to his Father, not metaphorically, but physically our representative embodied at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ is now ruling at the right hand of God the Father and that is actually where he is. And that means he is not physically here today. His presence is with us through the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit who as we read in verse 15 will take from what is mine and make it known to you. So, do you see why the sending of the Spirit is so important? Because he is spirit and not flesh, the Holy Spirit can testify about Jesus in Uruguay, in Jerusalem, in the Gobi Desert, all at the same time. Jesus could testify about himself to those within earshot. But through the Spirit, 
Jesus can testify to the world and be present with his followers throughout the world. Have a look at this picture on the screen there. It's the one hemisphere of the world at night. Every single place that there is a light and even where there is not, Jesus, the light of the world, is present by his spirit wherever one of his people are. The witness that can give eternal life is every single place where a Christian is on this planet. And that is why it was better for the disciples that he depart and send the Spirit. Because it's God's mission. And he's going to go before us everywhere his people go. So, what advocacy or wisdom is the Holy Spirit going to give? Well, firstly, he's going to testify about the truth to the world. Verse 8. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. He's going to convict the world, right? Now, this convicting message of the Spirit has a soft edge and it's got a hard edge. This is the soft edge. The Spirit convicting us is how Christians actually come to faith in the first place. It's actually the Holy Spirit getting into your heart and your mind and going, you know that you actually have sinned and you need Jesus. It's you going, you know, you're right. It's by having your eyes open to the reality of our rebellion, the need for forgiveness. It's the necessary first step before anyone can be saved. There is no salvation without repentance and there is no repentance without a recognition that we've actually wronged God and we need his mercy. And so when you first recognise that, if you can remember that time, guess what was happening to you? The spirit of the living God was testifying to you, to your heart and mind, those realities. And so in his grace, God lovingly kept it real with you and he confronted you with the truth so actually might lovingly save you out of the world, just like he saved billions of others throughout history. And remember, that's why Christ came into the world for the first place, to call people from death to life, from rebellion to worship. Now, that's the soft edge. The hard edge is this. God the Holy Spirit will bear witness and testify for eternity to the world's wrongness as the gospel is rejected and ignored. And in so doing, he will vindicate God for his justice in judgment and his people for their faith. It's like he's going to be the prosecuting attorney. And Jesus points out three ways the Spirit is going to testify to the world's wrongness. Verse 9, about sin, because people don't believe in me. See, we live in a world that minimises its sin, that denies its culpability and answerability. Well, the Spirit will testify to its rejection of the Son when he came. He's going, really? When the living God turned up, you killed him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. There is no greater truth to the reality of sin than the world's rejection of Jesus, past, present and future. Verse 10, about righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. So to a world that happily claims to be righteous and good, apart from the bad people, and, and so 
condemned Jesus as being a liar and a blasphemer. Well, the Spirit's going to testify to this, to, to this by saying, Christ is risen. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Your verdict that he was wrong or that you're righteous, he's the measure of righteousness and he is at the right hand of Father. God has vindicated him. The world's in the wrong. Verse 11, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And now we know this, don't we? We live in a world, and we've heard this currently, recently in the news. We live in a world that scoffs at the idea of God's judgment. We, we in fact, live in a world that's offended at the very idea that God might actually hold people to account for their sin. Well, a spirit will testify that the condemnation of the evil one has already begun. So to use the language of the other Gospels, the strong man's already been bound. With Christ's victory over sin and death, Satan and his lies are defeated. And the futility of his decision to rebel against God is made clear. Satan stands condemned by the triumph of the cross and the glory of the empty tomb. It was foolishness of the world to reject God and to follow Satan's leading in the first place, as we've all done. And it is doubly foolish to do so with Satan's defeat standing there before us. And if the ringleader of the rebellion stands condemned, then the world that follows his lead is surely going to follow because, as Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. If God judges your leader, he's going to judge you too. The world's wrong. But there's a second benefit to the coming of the Spirit. As the apostles go into the world, the Spirit will guide them that they might know and speak the truth. Verses 12 to 15. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. And that is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. See, wherever they go, the Spirit will inspire the apostles and he will reveal to them what God wants them to say. And you and I carry that same Spirit-inspired truth with us wherever we go that contains all we need for life and godliness. So yes, the truth is that the world is going to give us a hard time. But God will never leave his people alone. His spirit will be with us. And as Jesus goes on to say to his disciples, they're going to grieve, but that grief will turn to joy when they witness Christ in his glory risen, victorious from the dead. And his final word keeps it joyfully real for them and joyfully real for you and me as we carry on their work. Verse 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that the risen Christ has overcome the world. And we thank you that in your grace you reached out and you did 
testify to our hearts that we actually needed that grace. Um, Father, please help us to rejoice in the fact that we belong to Jesus and to stand courageously and faithfully firm for him in the world as we testify to the good news of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.